right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here, ready for the next episode of the Mix Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. This is episode number 276. With that number, we'll give a shout out to Mia Ham, who earned 200. And 76 caps in her 17-year career with the U.S. Men's National Team. She is fourth all-time on the USA list after being passed by Carly Lloyd last year. And as her goal-scoring record was passed, Ham's goal-scoring record was passed by Wambach back in 2013, let's go ahead and give a shout-out to Christine Sinclair, not for a stat related to number 276, but hey, she passed Wambach's world record of 184 goals earlier this week when she scored her 185th international goal against St. Kitts and Nevis. All right, today's podcast, this week's episode, first I spoke with broadcaster Jordan Angeli. She is calling every single CONCACAF Olympic qualifying game, mostly by herself. In the USA, you can hear Jordan on most, if not all, of the non-USA games. Uh, We talked about the first two games of the CONCACAF tournament and how she preps for working so many games in such a short time. And then I caught up with Bo Dewar, who covers both women's and men's soccer for Soccer America and The Guardian, to talk about the challenge of being a new head coach for the U.S. Women's National Team in the year between a Women's World Cup and the Olympics. We also talked about his new book, Why the U.S. Men Will Never Win the World Cup, which has a chapter dedicated to the challenges facing the future of the U.S. women's national team. And in between the two chats is my new recurring segment called Gensplaining. Each segment will explain off-the-field rules or procedures or look at a big bit of history to illuminate why things are done a certain way. This week, the topic is jersey numbers for the CONCACAF Olympic qualifying tourney. And a reminder, the 2019 edition of the Keeper Notes NWSL Almanac, it's arrived from the printers, it's ready to ship. It's a 350-page comprehensive guide to lots of stats, history, everything you could possibly want to know about NWSL all in one place. You can order your copy now at keepernotes.com. All right, Jen Cooper, the Keeper here with Jordan Angeli, who is the play-by-play and analyst for uh, the CONCACAF games on, on the world feed. Jordan, I mean, you, you, you've got the whole world in your hand right now. You're, you're doing both sides of, of the booth. Um, you know, tell me how that's been so far after two games in front of the mic. Yeah, I guess so. Love me or hate me, but I'm going to talk the whole entire game. That's <laughs> what you get right now. Uh, it's been great. You know, I think for me, it feels a little bit uh, the best of both worlds. I would say it's definitely a little bit more on the play-by-play side than on the analysis side. Right. But there are times where I am able to add a little bit of analysis, but it's it's tricky switching between the two brains. And um, But for me, it's just such an opportunity and I'm something I'm really grateful for because it's my second qualification tournament. I did the World Cup qualifiers back in October of 2018. And to be able to do this again and to call these games, it's really just an honor. So it's been fun so far. And two games in, we're already seeing a lot of goals and a lot of good play. 
Now, having done CONCACAF World Cup qualifying just a little over a year ago, I mean, I, I would imagine it makes it a little bit easier the second time around having to do so many games by yourself. It is a little bit easier. Yesterday, after yesterday, it was night. I think I left the studio at around 11 p.m. after calling both of the games. Um, you know, you get a little funny in those last that last 45. You're just chatting so much, <laughs> and you don't know um, what's been said in what game. But yeah, it, it there is a little bit of a comfort level having you know called games from studios before, but also called games solo. So I feel like I'm adding a little bit more personality as I go. And um, you're getting a real insight into what my brain is like all the time as I have these (laughs) conversations that are typically in my mind, but now they're just this stream of consciousness that's coming out and you get to hear uh, my reactions to everything. So it's, it's been fun. So that first game, um, I, I think we all felt that Costa Rica would, would have the edge. But that first half, Panama comes back late to make it 2-1. So, you know, what did you think going into the second half of that game? You know, it was important for Panama. And I, I said this, honestly, right before they scored, I said that they need a goal before going into halftime if they want to stay in this one. And the, the goal, just how the goal was scored at the end of the first half by Panama, I can't think of the girl's name right off the top of my head. Um, but she's falling away from the goal. It's a really difficult finish. And they came into the second half with a lot of energy, you know, with that belief. And I think Costa Rica did a really good job in the first 10 minutes to just uh, contain them and say, okay, I know you guys are going to come out with a lot of energy, but we're just not going to give you any, any real opportunity to get anything on frame. So even though Costa Rica didn't have a lot of the possession in that first 10 minutes, I think they did a good job of just uh, playing out that energy from the Panamanian side. And then the goal of the tournament. And I am, I'll be shocked to see if we see one better than this. Uh, Shirley Cruz, right after that 10 minute spell scored a volley straight volley off of a corner kick. It was so beautiful. I just, it was, I had to stop talking because as the replay was happening, you just needed to see it and hear it. The effects on it were so perfectly done that you could hear her strike the ball and, you know, the emotions that came from her, a player that's played in so many qualification games, a 34-year-old for Costa Rica. And really, I think when you think of Costa Rican women's team, you think of Shirley Cruz because she changed so much about um, the possibilities for those women that that are from there. And for her to score that goal and to see her overcome with emotion of just like how it must have felt to hit the ball so perfectly like that and what it meant to her and her team it was just like she was overflowing with um honestly just like the joy of what the game really is so uh, uh, it was such a moment if you didn't see it yet you should go check it out on uh twitter there's i i'm pretty much i'm pretty sure i'm retweeting every tweet that has it on there because it's so good (laughs) (laughs) and she had an assist later in the game and and was you know she earned a player of, of, of the game honors. And that was just, that was really cool to see. I mean, that it started, made me think like, Hey, how many, how many goals has Shirley Cruz had in, you know, the CONCACAF Olympic qualifying tournament. And I looked up and I was like, 
wait a minute, she played in the first one in 2004, you know, and then, and then of course I start thinking about Christine Sinclair and then I find, you know, then one of the Panamanians. (laughs) So there's three players in this tournament that have played in that, that first one back in 2004. It's just, yeah, crazy thing. And they're not that old, right? Like, right. Yeah. Like Shirley Cruz is what, like 35. So yeah. 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 That, that was a really great moment for Costa Rica. And then we just had that explosion in the second half of, you know, Mm all those goals kind of spurts, spurts where you're like, okay, yeah, here's, here's what we thought might happen. And then going into the the second game. um, Oh, go ahead. About the last two goals. Last time these, the, no, the last time these two teams met in qualification, the, it was a 6-1 scoreline as well. So um, fitting that that was the same thing that happened tonight. But I think we got a little taste too, and I think it would um, – I should mention just Yenis Bailey on Panama. We saw her kind of yes. come into her own after only playing a year in goal in that before that 2018 World Cup qualifier. And now, again, it, you know, her she's very unconventional as a goalkeeper goes, but she makes players think twice. And she did draw a PK and, uh, excuse me, commit a, a foul that led to a PK for Costa Rica. But she makes – she her ability to shot stop is really really quality and um you know as she continues to progress as in that goalkeeping um position she'll just get better and better but she she made so many saves to um you know the scoreline could have been a lot more for Costa Rica yeah definitely so for this the second game going in with um USA playing Haiti who they very rarely played and you know we know Haiti's not a team that that plays consistently so you had a lot of people going, oh, we're going to see lots of goals. Oh, this is going to be crazy. This could be, you know, 15 to zero kind of thing. And then we had a first half where mm-hmm. USA, you know, finished the half 1-0. And that first goal was from, you know, what, the second minute of play. So what are your thoughts on the first half of that game? Well, when you say that and all the talk about it being a high-scoring game, well, it started off that way, right? When you score within the first two minutes of the game. Right, right. I think everybody thinks, okay, it really is going to go that way. My my thoughts were Haiti did a really good job of just making it really difficult for the U.S. to create any kind of rhythm, and I think they just lacked that in, in the first half. And I don't know how much it was – a credit to Haiti and I don't know how much of it was a discredit to the U S right. Which team was, um, you know, I, I think right now my, my mind goes, Haiti did a good job in knowing that, okay, they just have to be disruptive and not allow yeah. the U S to get any kind of rhythm. And the ball was kicked out of bounds and kicked out of bounds and kicked out of bounds. I felt like I was um, waiting for a throw in calling the game for most of that first 45. But I I think one of the things that I noticed is when you look at the front three for the U.S., that was really where most of the changes were made, right? You have Lynn Williams, Carly Lloyd, and Kristen Press. And a lot of the build-up play for the U.S. ended with those three trying to connect in some kind of way. Maybe it wasn't all of them trying to connect. Maybe it was just a couple of them. But the ideas were there, right? But it was just the weight on the pass to Carly Lloyd can't be the same weight of the pass that you played to Lynn Williams. And those little things with those three players, I think it was just them trying to figure it out. And that's what you have to do. And the only way you can figure it out is, yes, you can do that in training, but you need to be in a game situation where it's on the line and you have to make that pass and you have to score that goal. So I leave the first 45 saying credit to Haiti for their discipline and their work on being disruptors. 
but also for the U.S., like, work through it. Like, work through it. There's going to be transition. There's going to be turnover. And I think if that's the case with the U.S. right now, that you know, they have a new coach. They have new players in those front three positions for that game. And um, there has to be a little bit of patience with that building. And I know that patience is hard when you're trying to qualify for a big tournament like the Olympics. But, you know, with 18 spots left, you have to give players that opportunity to actually be in the game and try to make things happen. And so I I think it, I, I liked that Vlako Ananovsky went with that front three and he, he tried it out and they had a chance to perform. And, um, you know, all those things didn't always work out the way they would have hoped for in that final third. I think the ideas were there and it's just like now fine tuning those uh, the final pass and stuff like that. I guess for Lynn Williams, you just, if you lose a boot, you, you're going to get an assist, but she should just keep running out of her shoes as much as possible. <laughs> I, know, I, know. I mean, to be that, to be that fast is just not something I can imagine. <laughs> and I was literally running I was out of your the shoes. press box. I could see it was, she was, that happened right in front of us. And we're like, she lost a shoe. <laughs> yeah, it just keeps on going. You know, doesn't doesn't oh, break yeah. or stride. That was that was an incredible moment. Yeah, um, yeah, and I like your point about how you know it's it's the tiny tiny little pieces of you know there, there's so much talent, but you get an even better push. Uh, you know, in, in your attack when it's people that have been playing together over and over. So any little change, right? There, there's going to be an adjustment. Um, and I think that's a better better way to look at it than I think what we often hear or often people see people tweet is like, oh, you know, they're, they're rusty. I'm like, no, they're not rusty. It's just, yeah. you know, some, some subtle shifts. And, you know, who knows what uh, Vlaco is, is saying or how things are changing, you know, behind right. the scenes. One of the things that I asked at, at the opening press conference, um, well, it was, I was after the, the press conference, um, but we're in the mix zone with the players after their first practice. And, you know, I asked Rapina, I said, what is it like transitioning from Vlaco as your club coach to Vlaco as your national team coach? And, and she's like, it's kind of strange because all of us are the same, but the staff has completely changed over. You know, she, yeah. so, to, so, so some things are exactly the same and it is a pretty structured day, right? Like, like they're the structure of practice and travel. None of that's changed. But it's like you've just swapped out, you know, a third of the faces. So, right. Yeah. right. No, um, that's, that's very difficult. I think the one other thing that I would say about the first 45 minutes is uh, I, I think people underestimate the challenge of breaking down a defense when there's so many players behind the ball. And uh, the amount of time that the U.S. was given on the ball just to build up um, with 11 players defensively behind them, sometimes uh, – it makes it even that much harder. So I would have liked, uh, and we saw it with one of the attacks in the second half, is they were still patient in their buildup, but the uh, how quickly they went from the left side of defense into the right side of their attacking third was so quick. And um, 
I think that was something that they needed to do. Plus, shifting like what line they were breaking. So having a, a forward come back into the midfield where while a midfielder breaks the back line and just kind of mixing up which line they were on, I think would have helped for them break down a little bit higher on the field. So um, there were just a couple things, but I think in general that first 45 was just a time for them to try to figure it out because they're going to face teams like that all the time, right? right? Those are probably the hardest teams for them to play because when you have a team that is going to come out and defend you, at least then you're able to manipulate the ball and manipulate numbers to find gaps that open up with the shifting of a defense. But when they're so, when there's six people on the back line and four people be in front of them, it just makes it really difficult. And then second half, we ended up seeing three goals from the USA, but we didn't, we didn't get another goal until um, we started seeing some subbing. So of course, Megan Rupino coming on in the 62nd minute and just five minutes later, she serves a corner. Lynn Williams, you know, gets a touch on it and boom, you know, they're up to zero. Uh, and then it seemed like something very similar to, uh, just maybe five, six minutes later with Lindsay Horan again, a uh, corner kick coming in from Megan Rupino. Horan and herself uh, a substitute getting a goal. And then of course, uh, I, I don't know how else you can call it other than like full body Carly Lloyd um, in stoppage time to get that fourth goal. Like we couldn't figure out looking at the replay. It's like, was it a face goal? Was it a boob goal? Was it a neck goal? Who knows? Somehow oh, really? she just flung I, her body. Yeah. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't notice that. I definitely thought initially that she hit it with her chest um, to guide it into the goal. It was perfect. Yeah. You know, if, when you're in training, as a player and you're going over these scenarios, um, you always, you practice those kind of things, right? The ball comes, yes, you're practicing techniques and how to strike the ball, but there's moments where you just have to do anything to get anything on it. And I think that was just right. um, the epitome of Carly Lloyd, you know, doing whatever she can to score a goal. And um, I liked it. I, I liked that she did that even in stoppage time. Right. Um Yes. For her to just continue to add to the number of goals she scored in CONCACAF women's Olympic qualifying. Uh, you know, the change was the subs. And I think whenever you have um, the ability to come on as a sub, you know, that's not something that Megan Rapino gets to do very often. So you get Megan Rapino coming in after watching 60 minutes of the game and saying, all right, I can go change this, right? And I think that just shows a different uh, ability and a different side of Megan Rapino that we don't get to see very often. And so she did. She came in, and the first way that she made an impact was on the corner kick. I, I think the corner kicks were quality, and they were served into a dangerous spot, and it wasn't as if Sam Mewis didn't have her opportunities on corner kicks already in the game. But Megan Rapino was like, I'm going to test the goalkeeper, and I'm putting this right on Lynn Williams, She's going to beat the goalkeeper, and I'm going to trust her. And so I, I really liked that. It was just a different look than they had seen. They had shown Haiti throughout the rest of the game. So, um, And then just the freedom in attack, and I think you saw it a little bit in the first half, but when Megan Rapinoe's on the ball and she's switching from the left side to the right side and um, has, has that ability to play on either side, uh, it just is a hard look. Plus, I told you, Haiti was so structurally – sound in the first half they were disruptive and they just started tiring out in about 70th minute you could just tell like 
they did yeah every they were they had given everything and it just a little bit started yes. to break down and cramp cramps and um you know going into challenges weird and you know no injuries thankfully no big injuries but like just awkward challenges that you put your body at risk because you're tired and I was looking at their roster and, you know, pressed that like their oldest player, I think, is just 23. So it's a, it's a very young squad because yeah. they, they don't have the opportunity to keep playing. Um, it's a different coach than they have, you know, for the longest time they had Czech Borkowski. So it, it just it seems like um, a new Haiti. And, and of course, we have to mention that, you know, by all accounts, it looks like they should have had their first ever goal against the USA or early on, but you know, nothing you can say about that other than I, I just like to say you've been concacaft, but um, you know, we never get to hear from the referees. We never get a report afterwards saying, you know, Hey, this is, this is why we decided. I mean, all, all we saw yeah. in the stats was, was it, was it, was it offside, but that moment, I mean, even just that 10 seconds where it looked like it happened, the, the Haitian reserves were in front of us in the press press box and they were losing it. It, it, it was, yeah. it was very joyful, you know, and it's, and it's oh, yeah. that kind of thing following CONCACAF where, you know, of course I'm supporting the USA, but the U.S. players' challenge and, and life and goals are very different than what we see for most of these CONCACAF nations. So it's that kind of thing. I would have loved to see Haiti score against the USA because we know inevitably, you know, what's going to happen, like you mentioned, around the 60th, 70th minute. You know, the, you mm-hmm. know these mm-hmm. opponents are not going to have the same, um, you know, athleticism. But it's like that joy. It's, it's like, oh, you know, it's like to not get that moment, you know. Um, but right. um, you know, maybe it'll come next time. Yeah. And when you're... Go ahead. Go. Oh, I was just going to say the the look on Alyssa Nair's face when the ball went in the back of the net, I think is how everybody, um, felt, but to watch in that moment, to watch Haiti celebrate and think that they had just scored on the world champs. Uh, it was cool to see how genuine and joyful they were in that exact, exact moment. And we'll just leave, uh, We'll leave what happened there TVD because yeah. still don't know what happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, those those are the moments I you know that I just think make soccer so great worldwide that you can have right. a really tiny country have a shot against a really big country. Yeah. You know, like yeah, like like TVD versus Spain. I don't know if you remember that confederations cup game where like tahiti actually got one back on spain and of course all the the players from tahiti were all part-time and they're playing against their favorite players you know just like yeah that's Mm -hmm. that's i I love those stories coming out of soccer so so let's, let's talk real quick before we go about um you know the games you have today of course you know people will be listening to this after these games but um anticipating some historic moments from christine sinclair um tonight so how do you prep for a game like that well i have a whole page of notes just on christine sinclair so i prep by just reading about her as much as i can um you know it's interesting and one of the things that i want to really sit down today and, and start to think about is how do you describe this this woman and um what she's done for not only her country in canada but for the world and you you mentioned you know she's played 
an Olympic qualifier since 2004. And her ability to stay in the game and, you know, her, her and Abby have just shown that great goal scorers maybe just get better with time. I think maybe Carly Lloyd shows that a little bit too. So, um, yeah, I, I'm prepping by – Actually, I think I'm going to tweet and and see if people would respond about, like, what they think of when they think of Christine Sinclair and see kind of um, some of the words that come up. Uh, one of the other things, that, you know, I, Abby Wambach's a good friend of mine, and um, I might try to see if I can reach out to her and just uh, see what she thinks of Christine Sinclair, right? Because those two have battled it out many, many times, but the respect and admiration for um, – two of the greatest to ever do it, I think is very high. And to me, it's just, it's so unique that on this, this week where we lose such a great um, athlete that we get to see another really great athlete go for an award that I think that athlete in Kobe Bryant would be really um, in awe of everything that she's accomplished and just, um, yeah. So it's really, it's a cool moment. And I honestly, when I had the realization that that could be me, you know, like that this could happen, I could be calling the game. I just thought, what a, what an honor, you know, having played against Christine Sinclair and, um, you know, have had so many conversations with her over the years that, um, I get to be a very small part of that moment for her, but trying to honor her in the best way that I can, I think is my, my number one goal. Yeah. It's just, uh, it's funny that I think a lot of us thought it might happen last summer, you know, Mm -hmm. during the world cup, you know, and and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sure she and many others were disappointed that, that it didn't. Um, and, and I just, I, I love that, you know, Canada, I, I'm sure it's just thinking it's like, no, we're gonna not gonna let her retire until this happens, right? Like Canada, Canada, <laughs> right? Canada, Canada does not have many soccer records, right? And so, you know, for Canada to to, you know, have a chance at a world record, you know, and I love the fact that, you know, when Sinclair does pass Wambach, it's still it's like you look at the the list of all time goal scorers, the top four are still CONCACAF. And at this point, mm-hmm. Carly Lloyd's just uh, seven goals away from making make being top five all time. So it's like, yeah, Concacaf, yeah. <laughs> right, right, absolutely. Well, absolutely. Jordan, I'm, I'm gonna let you go because I know you've got so much prep to do for for two more games tonight and a lot more games to go. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. I, I do. I do want to say. Oh, go ahead. I just want to say before I go, um, just thank you, Jen, for connecting me with Janae Bukloski from St. Kitts. I had about an hour conversation with her this morning, and I'm really excited about those combos and to be able to talk to these nations that, you know, it's very difficult in prepping to find a lot of information on Haiti, to find a lot of information on St. Kitts and Nevis. Um, So to have that conversation with her and to get a little bit of a glimpse into their culture and what they are trying to do there is just, uh, I'm really I'm excited to call that game and to honor these women that have uh, worked so hard to have this opportunity to represent their nation and do their best to qualify for an Olympic. Uh, all right. Tournament. We'll all be, we'll all be watching. Um, if not uh, on your feed, which you can watch on one soccer, you know, we've also got Fubo and Fox sports and TDUN or however you say it, but yeah, it's just, yeah. yeah. I I'm think so glad this tournament be- finally underway. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. And so I'll I'll have the first um of the game with Canada with Casey White, which will be great. So she'll be I'll have an analyst for that game and then oh, um, I'll be solo on good. the other game. I'm not alone. Mm. They, you know, it's a big moment. So I think I'm really happy that Casey White was able to join and um, that we get to have an analyst for the Canadian games because, uh, yeah, like, like you said, this is huge. Kristen Sinclair uh, potentially breaking the goal scoring record is something that um, I know everybody wants to just hear from me, but to have an analyst is really nice. <laughs> All right, time for a little gensplaining. Today's topic, roster numbers, or rather jersey numbers, for CONCACAF Olympic qualifying. All right, so you may be wondering, why is Kristen Press not wearing number 23? Why is Ashlyn Harris not wearing number 24? And most importantly, why is Lynn Williams wearing Alex Morgan's number? Well, this is how it works. For any competitive tournaments, uh, like... Olympic qualifying, World Cup qualifying, Olympics, World Cup, etc. You can only use the range of numbers uh, for the roster size. So there's 20 players on the roster for each team for CONCACAF Olympic qualifying, which means they have to use number one to 20. And number one has to be a goalkeeper. So Kristen Press, we know she usually wears 23. She can't wear 23 in this tournament. So she's wearing number 20. Ashlyn Harris, who whenever she's playing a friendly, usually wears 24. That's her preferred number. She wears it for the pride. She is wearing number 18, her usual kind of competitive tournament number. That's what she wore for the World Cup. Lynn Williams, of course, was not part of the World Cup roster last year. She has to take a number between 1 and 20. Once everybody has taken their usual number, well, she and Andy Sullivan, who also wasn't part of the World Cup roster, they have to take whatever's left over. The numbers that were left over were basically 6 and 13. So it probably wasn't even her choice. It was probably team administrator's choice or something like that. But keep in mind, players don't have a choice about that. Player numbers 1 through 20 have to be used. And next summer in the Olympics, only 18 players are on the final roster. So those numbers have to be used. So if Kristen Press makes the Olympic roster, as we expect she will, she won't even be able to wear 20 as she's wearing now. She'll have to wear a lower number. So I hope that explains the jersey number issue. Um, It's almost never the player's choice, and there's a lot of seniority that comes behind it too. But uh, Lynn Williams is not trying to upset Alex Morgan. And of course, we all know Kristen Press would prefer to wear number 23, but she can't. Uh, for this tournament or for the Olympics. All right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Bo Dure, as I like to say. Dure. Uh, Bo Dure. Yeah, I know. That's the American way of saying it. Yeah. Uh, Bo Dure, who is freelance soccer writer for Soccer America and Guardian and has covered, you know, the pro leagues and the, the women's national team off and on for years. Uh, I mean, I have to give a plug, Bo, to 
to your book from after the 2013 NWSL season, because we know there's a lot of new NWSL fans these last few years who probably have no <laughs> idea that that book exists, but it's called Enduring Spirit. Bo was basically embedded with the, the Washington Spirit for the first season. So that, that book's still out there on Amazon, people. But uh, part of the reason I have Bo on today is because of your, your new book, um, which we'll, we'll get more into at, at, at the end of the chat. But uh, I love that the title is Why the U.S. Men Will Never Win the World Cup. Um, and of course, people might think, well, why are we having Bo on a women's soccer podcast? But Bo... But it all makes sense because, hey, you've covered women's soccer a long time. I've had you on the podcast before. We'll come back around to the book. But first, let's talk about uh, the beginning of Olympic qualifying Tuesday night, uh, U.S. women playing Haiti, having some challenges against Haiti. Um, I don't know. How much How much of that do you think is rust? How much of that is, well, it's the first game of the year and there was no friendly leading up to it? I, I don't know. What do you think about that game? Was it uh, Neil Young who recorded the album called Rust Never Sleeps? Because I, <laughs> I think that's what we saw. Yeah. I, and that, and that's to be expected. And also, you know, a monsoon was rolling in. I, I, oh, you, no, it was not. Yeah. No, it wasn't. That wasn't a monsoon? <laughs> no, that wasn't a monsoon. It looked like it on TV. Yeah. Okay. What was funny, I mean, there was heavy rain for about five minutes, but what was funny where we were in the press box as the the rain rolled in and you could hear it, like it was louder than it was heavy. Um, The wind was so strong that it was only landing on about half the people in the stands. Wow. You know, so, so I was, I was, I was like, wow, it's shooting it past us. And then, then it started to come down on us. Most of us moved inside and then with five minutes, we were back outside. It was weird. It, I, I wouldn't call it monsoons so much as just kind of a, a weird tropical burst. How about that? Because, hey, Houston is in the tropics. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah they, sorry, they, they, don't get, they don't get the monsoon excuse, especially when that didn't even happen until the second half. Sure. Um, but what there were people telling me that the forecast may have kept some fans away. And, yes. yeah, it just, yeah, well, it, 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 it did pour. It did pour most of the day until about 2.30 p.m., yeah. Yeah, so th- there wasn't really that atmosphere for them to feed off of. I think that, I mean, it it looked pretty empty on TV. And Well, see, so see, I call, I call foul on that, too, because even though, yeah, it did look pretty empty on TV because, obvi- you know, people always buy the bench side, so they're by the players, and then you don't see them. But ambiance-wise, I felt like uh, American Outlaws actually did a pretty good job of adding ambiance to what what was a pretty small crowd, you know. Um, and hey, hey, yeah. isn't this why is, isn't this why Jill took the team to France early last year? You know, like hey, you need to have the experience of playing, you know, in a stadium that's not full of thirty thousand adoring fans. Yeah, but um, (laughs) there they were also facing some hostile fans. I mean, yeah, these games are difficult to get up for. I mean, you're going to play in in front of a few thousand. Yeah, Yeah. you're going to play Haiti in front of a couple thousand instead of playing, you know, when Chibolese rolls around and they're playing, you know, one of the top 10 teams in the world in front of 25,000. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. that's going to be, you know, which one would you get up for? Yeah. and you know Haiti's not going to exactly. beat you. You know goal difference probably isn't going to figure into it. I mean, you might have to get up a little bit to play Costa Rica, 
which has, you know, an outstanding attacker in Shirley Cruz, who scored a fantastic goal uh, in, in that route of Panama. Yeah, I know it's Panama, but, you know, Costa Rica's got some decent players, so they'll, that's the one game in this group that they'll really have to get up for. And then, of course, they'll have the semifinal, which could be a little bit tricky if they, you know, they may have to, they'll have to face likely either Canada or Mexico, and that's not a guaranteed win. And that's the game that matters. You know, so, yeah. um, so in a way, it's good that they have the three group stage games to warm up, you know, shake off the rust before they have that one must win game. And, you know, people say must win a lot, uh, implying that uh, a team is in trouble uh, and they have to win that game to stay afloat. In this case, it's just the way the format is. You know, they could um, have a goal difference of, you know, 30 to zero in the group stage. And that one game is still a must win. So, And we, we've, we've seen that. Uh, that makes me think of how many U17 women's CONCACAF tournaments have the... Yep. The, the U.S. women like have like a 40 to zero goal differential, but they they lose on penalty kicks or something like that. Like, you know, ultimately, in some games, it doesn't matter. It, it's happened. Yeah, it's happened many times um, because um, there are maybe three teams that can qualify for those tournaments uh, or that have the capability of qualifying for them. And you it doesn't matter what you do to the other teams. You have to beat that one. And yeah, a draw isn't enough. You're going to, you know, you're going to get into penalties. And uh, you can imagine when you're wearing a U.S. badge and you go, oh my goodness, we, have, you know, this kick decides whether or not the mighty U.S. gets to go to a, a youth uh, international tournament. You know, that's a lot of pressure. Whereas, you know, the, the teams that, the team that just held you to a draw is like, all right, hey, you know, flowing <laughs> with confidence. So, um, and that makes you know, me think. Of, me. That yeah. makes me think of how a lot of our, you know, World Cup players have said, you know, that they thrive on pressure, and you know, pressure makes us, and all those advertising campaigns. And like you're saying, it is hard to get up for these games, and since that pressure is not there, right? Like that that is that is a challenge. At least this is a game where it's what we call a competitive match, right? It, it it's related to an outcome of a tournament. Anybody who plays in this tournament that hadn't played in a competitive match for the U.S. before is now um, cap-tied, you know? Like, so think about it. Now Lynn Williams is actually cap-tied, right? Not, mm. not that she has any other country to go play with, but, you know, this, this is, you know, an official competitive match. Um, you know, it's not like, say, when they played Haiti, uh, in those two victory tour games in 2015, right. Where it's like, you know, there, there's no, nothing related to the outcome of those games. But I, I also wondered too, with just the scheduling of it, not being able to schedule a friendly, um, you know, because 2016, I guess they had to go straight into it in 2012 too, but 2016, they had the friendly against Denmark, right. You, you know, so you have a camp with then a game at the end of it, and then you roll into qualifying. Yeah, 2012, they had to go straight into it as well. And I just, you know, I wonder how that affects things, especially when, you know, it is a new coach um, and it's a new staff. Uh, so yep. a lot of things are the same in terms of the roster is almost exactly the same, but a lot of things behind the scenes have have changed. Um, but other, other thoughts from you on the games uh, Tuesday night? 
Well, it shows the, where the selection dilemmas are, because if you look in the back line in the midfield, we're all familiar. Uh, and, you know, those seem pretty well set. Uh, you know, maybe the occasional rotation in the midfield trio. But then up front, you know, all the different choices uh, that you have. And I I actually kind of like the, you know, I, I feel like I've been providing the kind of reality checks on Megan Rapino, um, who had a a good World Cup, but not the you know world class, world domination uh, World Cup that a lot of people think that she had. So I like her in the role of a super sub because she's so dangerous on set pieces. That's that's where she thrives. You know, I don't like her as much running for ninety minutes. You know, come in for thirty minutes. Uh, you know turn the game, well, not necessarily even turn the game around, but just create that extra danger. Uh, So I think that we don't know if that's what Vladko is really going to do. He may just be rotating people through these games to keep them fresh. Uh, But I like that idea. Um, But, you know, you're also missing uh, Alex Morgan. Um, I would like to see more of Tobin Heath. I always would because I think that she is the most skillful player on this team, uh, perhaps the most skillful player in many years uh, in the women's program. I think, you know, your occasional broadcast colleague, Allie Wagner, is one of the few people I can think of who'd give her a run for her money. So the front line selections will be interesting to watch. And you can't necessarily know, again, from this game, whether that's what Vlatko wants to go with. We'll have to see what he goes with in that semifinal that really counts because that's where you'll get an indication of what Blacko really thinks of his attacking options. And with this tournament, you know, the, the games are closer together than the World Cup. You know, rotation is going to come into it. And I think it's also a good dry run for the actual Olympics where, again, the games are every three days. It's not like the Olympics yeah. where there's four or five days apart. And you don't have a 23-player roster. You know, when they get to Tokyo or Japan, they'll have uh, an 18-player roster, right? So, I mean, that's that's got to be something that they're, that they're thinking of. Right. Um, and it goes and back I, to 2016 with the, the, the biggest mistake Joe Ellis made uh, in her tenure, which was taking an injured Megan Rapinoe uh, on that 18-player squad uh, because that made it, almost like 17 and a half just because she wasn't fully fit then. Yeah. Yeah. Just like each, each, each spot is that much more important because you're not going to get, yeah, no, no one's going to get to have a tournament where they're, where they're not part of part of playing, you know? Um, I also want to ask you um, since, you know, since this happened yesterday and I, I recorded with Jordan Angeli before this happened, just, uh, Thoughts on Christine Sinclair passing Abby Wambach? Well, it's a tribute to her. I mean, for one thing, keeping herself in shape for that many years. You know, those of us who are uh, past 35 uh, know what a challenge it can be uh, to keep yourself in, in shape that whole time. But also, she is simply, you know, one of the most skilled uh, scorers that there's ever been. Uh, of course, a um, product of the NCAA system playing at Portland and someone who I think has been able to refine her game as her 
you know, as she's gotten older, she's not the player that she was 10 years ago, but, you know, nobody is. And I think it's worth noting that I think Canada often faces tough competition and maybe doesn't get to play as much as the U.S. does. So I think that makes it a little bit more impressive as as well. You look back and as as great a player as Mia Hamm was, when she set the record, you know, that was when the U.S. just typically crushed people. And they didn't have as many um, – as many big games. Now they, they didn't necessarily play as often, but um, you know, I remember if you see Mia lining up for a 20 yard free kick, the other team just practically hiding, you know, like uh, Scott Sterling in the uh, video clip, you know, trying to get out of the goal before she shoots. Um, (laughs) And so, so competition's gotten that much better. So yeah, it's, it's great for, um, it's great for Sinclair to get that honor. You could argue that if Wambach had been uh, healthier uh, through her career, that she would have had a few more goals and the uh, that record would have been more difficult for Sinclair to break. But, you know, Sinclair, uh, you'd have to put in a discussion. If you're talking about a top five of all time, you'd have to put Sinclair right in there. Well, especially when you look at, uh, you know, Sinclair playing on a team that has not, had uh for the most part the strength of the u.s over the years like when you look at wambach you know the players playing around her and and that's why i think stats are are they almost always need an asterisk when it comes to soccer right because like a a goalkeeper stats are not just her stats right and when you you look at mia ham's assist rate and how many how many goals of Abby's that she assisted, right? Like I think of, oh my God, if Christine Sinclair was on a team where she had more support, what what would have that what what would that scoring rate look like? But bottom line, I'm just excited that the the record is kind of kept in Concacaf, right? Like it's great for Canada to have something to to own, right? It's it, it's great for kind of women's soccer news, and it all stays in Concacaf, right? So it's yeah, it's exciting. Um, so one of the other reasons I wanted to have you on on the call at, at this time, Bo, was you know you covered the 2008 Olympics. Um, yeah, I mean you were even over in in Beijing for that, and mm-hmm. that cycle was the last cycle where it was a new coach between the World Cup and the Olympics. Now, of course, it was a different situation because they had just bombed out of the semifinals at a very contentious World Cup with a lot of drama that we don't we don't need to rehash. And so Pia Sundaga was brought in in December 2007 and, you know, had to turn around a team pretty quickly. Also factoring in that then Christine Lilly was out with pregnancy. There were some injuries. Of course, you know, unplanned, they lost Abby Wambach to a broken leg, like right before they were going to fly over to China. But from, from what you remember about covering that cycle, I mean, what do you think the challenges, the biggest challenges for, Vlatko are coming in as a new coach, you know, regardless of that there's a, you know, women's world cup title that was, that's just in your rearview mirror, but it's, it's still coming in on a very short time frame. I think the challenge for Vlatko is to make sure that he has uh, the buy-in and if he suggests the change, he won't just have players going, Hey, that's not the way we did it when the world cup, uh, when we won the world cup. 
So he has to make sure that whatever little tinkering he makes, uh, he's able to get players uh, to buy into it. Because we've seen what happens when players on this team don't buy in it. And you know, this is this has been a team historically where the players have much more the the dynamic between the players and the coaches, or the power balance between the players and the coach is so much stronger for the players than on any other team that I can think of. Um, you know, the only other thing I can think of is, you know, old NBA teams where the, you know, the star player gets the coach fired. Um, right. You know, there's been that sort of dynamic in the past. Now, the good thing is that um, Vladko came in very highly recommended by a lot of the players on this team, including uh, the, the quiet leader, Becky Sauerbrunn. So I think that'll help in that case because with Pia, the team needed a change. Uh, they needed a change in mentality. Uh, they kind of needed a change in tactics, but they weren't really – there's only so much you can do in a short period of time. You can't suddenly uh, say, hey, we're going to start playing possession soccer when you have uh, a whole team of players that aren't used to doing that. Uh, they may have done a little bit more of that that season because they didn't have the uh, you know what I like to call the uh, whack it to Wambach you know philosophy that actually <laughs> killed them in the 2000 yeah it actually killed them in the 2003 World Cup where uh, under April Heinrich they just had this unimaginative attack uh, where at some point you want to say look it hasn't worked when you you know slam the ball up to Wambach the first 30 times what makes you think it's going to work the 31st. Uh, because Germany knew how to defend that. They had the defenders who could do that, and the U.S. didn't have diverse enough attack uh, to do that. So, you know, Pia didn't change things too much tactically, except that she had to find another forward. And uh, however she came up with the idea of playing Angela Hughley's up front, I, I don't know, because that was uh, not the choice that anyone would have expected. Uh, that's not a position that we were used to seeing her play. But it worked. So she knew her team well enough to make this uh, unusual player move uh, and made that work. But it was really more of a change of mentality. And, you know, she was someone who you know, came in and was almost like an oddball. You know, you come in and start singing, you know, hey, we're going to sing Bob Dylan now. And that's a bit of a change from you know, the, the Greg Ryan era. And, you know, bear in mind, Greg Ryan, how many games did he lose? Was that the only official game that he lost in 2007? That's the official game, that's, that's the official game he lost in his tenure mm -hmm. in three years. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was um, – but I think there was just some fault lines there that were exposed at the World Cup, and that's why he was fired after losing one game. Right. So, uh, so Pia had had to rebuild essentially, and bear in mind, you know, not to dwell too much on 2007, but the narrative that Hope Solo would have made those saves is completely false. If you go back and look at that game, you will see utter domination. Brazil just destroyed the U.S. Mar and Marta was on, on fire. Marta was on fire. Marta made some good defenders look foolish. Um, yes. Right. And so and, a lot and of things, yeah. he had a red mm -hmm. card, right? Was that right before the right before the half? I mean, I have to remind myself that they played yeah. the entire second half a man down. Yeah, they, they did, but you know, I think that's 
that was a product of the pressure that Brazil was putting them under. Mm. And the, and so uh, Pia came in and changed the mentality, changed some, you know, there were some different players on the field. I went back and watched the 2008 final uh, not too long ago because I did a story on it, interviewed some of the people involved. And Heather Mitz was fantastic in that game. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't just, uh, hey, we swapped out Solo for Scurry and we won. Uh, it was, um, and bear in mind, the U.S. opened that Olympics with a loss. And right. I was there, you know, uh, uh, mix up between uh, Kate Markgraf, the great player that, that she has been, uh, who ought to be in the Hall of Fame. That's another subject. Um, you know, mix up between Markgraf and Solo, and they're down 1-0 fairly early. And, you know, they lost that game, didn't look too impressive. And then you go into the press conference, and Pia is just her unflappable self. You know, she's, you know, my glass is half full. She said that, I think, at least once every press conference, uh, <laughs> no matter what had happened. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, it was just a different sort of challenge. And it shows that if you get people to buy in, that you can make changes. That That's the one common thread, because otherwise it's such a different situation. You have a, a team right now. Blacko has a team that is just on a roll. Uh, they look unbeatable, even though a couple of those games in the World Cup could have gone the other direction uh, with an occasional bounce here and there. As But I thought the U.S. was the best team in that World Cup and certainly deserved to be champions. And so um, Blacko has to make sure that you know he gets by. And also, he may need to guard against complacency uh, because, you know, if the – Hopefully the U.S. women aren't reading their press clippings too much because you get a lot of people writing about women's soccer who don't write about women's soccer that often, don't realize how good these other teams are, and they just – they don't see the good things that other teams do. They, you know, they're sort of shocked. Hey, how did, how did England score? That's bizarre. It, they don't realize how good these teams <laughs> are. and. Um, or even or even Haiti having that shot on goal that, you know, by all rights should have been a goal against the U.S. It's like there yep. is talent among all of these, you know, smaller countries, but they just for the most part don't have the opportunity to train, you know, regularly um, together. Um, well, and one of the reasons I wanted you to talk about, you know, kind of past Olympics and stuff is that there is a great chapter in your new book, why the U S men will never win the world cup that kind of addresses, okay, the women have a whole different situation and obviously they've won four times, but you know, talk about, talk about the bullet points of, of, of that chapter. Why, you know, the U S women long-term future, they're going to have different challenges than, than the men have had. Well, what's interesting is that the subtitle of, of the book, which is a historical and cultural reality check, applies much more to the men than it does to the women. I'm not even sure it applies to the, to the women because on the men's side, the problem is that every other country in the world, uh, was soccer was the sport. I don't know about every right. other country, but most other countries in the world, soccer was the sport. I mean, you go back to, uh, you know, I go back to World War One when, you know, it's Christmas Day and the English and German troops get out of the trenches and play. I mean, that that's incredible. You know, th- that the game was that embedded in everyone's culture that it, you know, it took precedence over a war <laughs> and, yeah. and sometimes has, you know, that that's the old, 
I don't know how much thought to put in it, but the, uh, you know, people will lay down their guns when Pele comes to town. Uh, that's what it is elsewhere in the world. And the U.S. men have been fighting that. Now, on the women's side, the U.S. was one of the early adopters. Um, you know, Title IX certainly helped because you could argue that for many years, the best league in the world was the Atlantic Coast Conference or the Pac-10, and now the Pac-12. Um, you know, what? Where else did you have better soccer? So, in that sense, the U.S. women are not affected by the same forces that the men are. The problem is that a lot of these forces spill into uh, some dysfunction and some arguments uh, within within U.S. soccer. And one cultural thing that spills over is the uh, individualism of the U.S. It's harder to get us all on the same page. We all think that we have the best idea, and that's where you end up with these turf wars in youth soccer uh, that you have on – you know, the boys and you definitely have it on the in boys youth soccer and it spills over into girls youth soccer where you have, you know, the ECNL is the accepted, you know, de facto top youth league in the country uh, for about a decade. And then U.S. soccer says, well, we're going to start a development academy on the girls side and we're not going to include the ECNL. We're going to do things a different way. And so now you have these. And the way this manifests itself is, you know, travel soccer ends up being more about the travel than the soccer because you might have two clubs that are 10 miles away from each other. And on a given weekend, they're traveling, you know, 200 miles, sometimes flying to another game that might not be as competitive as the game they'd have if they just played their neighbors. That's just insane. It is. And also having all these different approaches does, you know, there's a lot of talk about what a national style entails. And I think that's a bit overrated, but you at least want to have some commonality. And when you have all these different approaches, uh, that creates a bit of, creates a bit of chaos. So those forces could eventually hurt the U.S. women. And you've mentioned already the U.S. youth results are much worse than they used to be. So it's been part of it, of course, is that the world is catching up a bit. And that's something that the women, you know, it's unique to the women in the sense that, you know, yes, you have this head start, but eventually people start to start to catch up. And it may only be a handful of countries, just like on, on the men's side, you know, how many countries have won the World Cup? It's not many. And so... If you say, well, there are other countries catching up, that's still, you know, the elite is still only going to be about 10 teams. Um, in yeah, the and I, side, I never like the phrase yeah. catching catching up, um, mm-hmm. but because I, I think it, it just simplifies it too much. But yeah, I guess a lot of times in, in sports coverage, that's the easiest way to say it. Right. I think, you know, when Kate Markgraf was doing analysis of the World Cup and she said, you know, the difference is essentially where you once had a top four or five, you can legitimately talk about a top maybe 10. And so the, you know, the getting past the quarterfinals now uh, could be more difficult. I mean, this year, you know, last year, the U.S. had a difficult game in the round of 16. And yeah. People forget it. It actually, yeah. took, actually took kind of a dodgy penalty kick call uh, to get that one through. And this was only the second World Cup that we had a round of 16. So it's like, here's this extra hurdle that everyone has to clear. 
Right. So in in one sense, the the U.S. women are going to have a tough time replicating their past success simply because there is more competition. And in another sense, um, all this competition is coming up when U.S. soccer is maybe not doing things quite the right way. Certainly not get, you know, we talked about buy-in. They're certainly not getting buy-in from everybody. You know, you talk with youth coaches, they're a grumpy group of people um, because, uh, and a lot of people, I went to a, I'm a referee now. I went to my recertification class and the first 15 minutes was our instructor complaining about U.S. soccer. <laughs> so that that's the kind of bad feeling that we have right now. And you can blame Sunil Gulati, the past president. You can blame uh, Dan Flynn, the longtime CEO. You can blame Jay Burhalter, um, who the the Nets good thing I hear about him will be the first. And you can blame all these people, but it part of the problem is simply that we all have our own ideas. It's hard to get us all together. I mean, you have a lot of U.S. fans that don't support Major League Soccer. You know, that... How normal is that? And, you know, fortunately on the women's side, I don't think you're going to have a U.S. women's soccer fan who says, nah, I'm not going to watch the NWSL. I don't think you have that. I don't think it's that bad. Uh, but they, the they, they might not be actively watching it, but they won't be opposed to it. Exactly. Yeah, they're, they're not going to just completely scoff at it and say, oh, you know, oh, that league's terrible. I mean, you, you right. can't say that about a league that has – you know, Rapino and Marta and every single, member, and every single member of the World Cup team, yeah. Right. And and some and not as many great, you know, foreign players as we had in the WSA, uh, but still still some very good foreign players here. So so it's not it's not as bad as it is on the men's side, but it's really more at the youth level. So it's the sort of thing that you might not notice if you're watching the NWSL. You might uh, you might not say, oh, well, you know, here's all this fragmentation. It, yeah, it's not going to come up in the NWSL, but it comes up at the youth level, and that's where every player comes from. And and we have you know, this year is is a U-17 and a U-20 Women's World Cup. And, of course, Laura Harvey, now head coach of the U.S. U-20. So it's like the pressure is really on those coaches, right? And it seems like we've had a lot of turnover uh, for those coaching jobs. Oh, we have. They, uh, they were at one time all but one of the youth coaches coaching jobs on both the boys and girls side. Uh, they were all vacant. Uh, they've gone on a hiring binge lately that included Laura Harvey, and you can't argue too much with that hire. I mean, it'll be interesting to see what she does in a uh, national team setting where she can't, I mean, in the NWSL, she had the reputation of being just a wizard when it came to trades. And that's not something she can do with a national team, but she is obviously well liked and uh, people, and she seems very sound tactically and uh, good at giving technical instruction. So that's, you know, we should all be cautiously optimistic about that hire. Uh, but that's again where U.S. soccer dysfunction comes in. You know the the requirement now is that if you work for U.S. soccer, you have to go live in Chicago, uh, which is a nonsensical requirement. I think the only person who's happy with it is Ernie Stewart, who is uh, the manager of all national teams now. Although 
you know, hopefully he won't be meddling too much in what Kate Markgraf does. And for Markgraf, it wasn't that big a deal because she's already an upper Midwesterner uh, in the first place. But, you know, there were a couple of U.S. youth coaches who quit because they're like, I'm not going to Chicago. Why would I go someplace? You know, why would I leave home and also go to a place that where you can't train, you know, four months out of the year? You know, why are we going there and not to Frisco and not to or not to Chula Vista, not one of these places that has a fantastic soccer complex? You know, wouldn't that make more sense? Uh, but Ernie Stewart says, well, in the Netherlands, we all gathered together like this. Well, yeah, in the Netherlands, you can leave your office and go see any game in the country and drive back and, and do it all in one day. This isn't the Netherlands. This is a huge country. So, um, so yeah, that's another example of how U.S. soccer shoots itself in the foot and it will come back to hurt the women. So I hope that happens later rather than sooner that it comes back to bite us because, you know, obviously got a really strong senior squad right now, but nobody can play forever. Not even Carly Lloyd. She can't play, you know, uh-huh. another 15 years. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think that for me, reading your book, reading that chapter of the book, th- that was just a fascinating aside of like, you know, sure, it's easy to say something like the men are never going to win the world cup and, and break all that down. But to, I, you know, so glad that you added that chapter about the women that it's like, look, these, these things have been kind of biting us on the heels for a while. Um, you know, and, and could, could down the line, you know, if, if there's not easy paths for players to be identified, then we don't keep rebuilding, refueling, you know, sending more great players up to the national team. Well, Bo, thank you so much for taking the time um, to chat about all these topics. And, and I highly recommend that everyone everyone buy your book, even if they're only women soccer fans. <laughs> yeah, because it all and it's all about managing expectations, both on the men's and women's side. I mean, it's um, you, you can't deem something a failure uh, for not getting the results that you don't want. And you know, people, you know, we should appreciate the wins that we do get both in men's and women's because, you know, winning the world cup in 2019 was a very difficult thing to do. And they did it and need to appreciate that just and reaching the world cup quarterfinals on the men's side is a very difficult thing to do. And the men did that in 2002. Uh, So, you know, we should try not to, you know, all get the knives out and start stabbing each other. uh, (laughs) when The result doesn't go our way. You know, we should, um, you know, take a look at and see what we can do better but do it together and do it with a realistic look at the obstacles that we face all right time to wrap it up with the back four as i mentioned earlier the newest edition of the nwsl almanac produced by keeper notes is available for purchase 350 pages of everything about NWSL's first seven season, color photos, stats by season, player and coach registry, lots more. You can't get this info anywhere else, all in one place. And you can order it now at keepernotes.com. There's, you can buy the print version, the PDF version, or both. And of course, as we all know, Olympic qualifying is underway. Uh, I set up a CONCACAF landing page on keepernotes.com so you can download an interactive standings grid that lets you 
plugin scores and the standings will automatically update. I also put a complete list of broadcast options for USA and Canada. And don't forget the top two from each group will advance to the semifinals next Friday. That'll be played in LA. And then the winners of the semifinals, they qualify for the Olympics and they go on to play in the CONCACAF tournament final on Sunday, February 9th. That's also in LA. And then looking past Olympic qualifying, the next set of games for the U.S. Women's National Team is the annual She Believes Cup. This year, they'll face England to start the tournament on March 5th in Orlando. Then they face Spain on March 8th at Red Bull Arena uh, in Harrison, New Jersey. And then they wrap up the tournament playing against Japan, Frisco, Texas, north of Dallas. Tickets are already on sale. You can check it out at ussoccer.com. Of course, you can also still get tickets for Olympic qualifying at that site too. And last, you can mark your calendars. April 18th will be the start of the 2020 NWSL season. We know that October 17th will be the end of the regular season, and we know that the playoffs will be in November. Hopefully we'll see a schedule out in a few weeks. All teams already have tickets on sale. Um, If you're not sure how to find a ticket link, just go to nwslsoccer.com, and there's a ticket menu that leads to the ticket page for every single team in the league. All right, that's it for this episode of the Mix Zone. Thanks as always to everyone for listening, anyone who's given me feedback, and as always, many thanks to Sean and the Beautiful Game Network for making this podcast possible. But now she's at-